Welcome to In the Booth, a Frederick News Post podcast exploring the 2016 races to represent Frederick County. This has been an election year like no other, both around the county and around the country. Here we'll explore issues important to Frederick County voters, from third-party candidates to overcrowded roads and classrooms to presidential politics. I'm Jeremy Bauerwolf, here with my co-host, Danielle Gaines. Hello. And we are In the Booth. At Gladhill, our customers expect the highest quality furniture from the very best manufacturers, all at great prices. Stop by our showroom during the Veterans Day sale and see solid wood American handmade bedrooms and enjoy discounts of up to $600 off select Tempur-Pedic bedding. With 0% interest till 2020 and holiday delivery options, we offer the best furniture savings and service to our customers. This week on In the Booth, we talked with the head of the Goucher Poll, Malia Cromer, and Todd Eberly, Associate Professor of Political Science and Public Policy at St. Mary's College of Maryland. As might be expected at this stage in the election season, we talked a bit about the 2016 races here in Maryland, and then set our sights on the 2017 General Assembly session and the 2018 Governor's race. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. I wanted to talk to you guys. By the time people are listening to this, they'll already have been out to early voting. And I was wondering what you're expecting or anticipating as far as turnout goes this election. Well, you know, it's it's a great question. Um, And we have some conflicting data points that tell us two different things. Uh, First and foremost, we have the two least popular candidates um, in the modern era since we've begun polling on this. And typically, when candidates are not liked, turnout is low. So that tells us we should have low turnout. At the same time, more people are paying attention to this election than we normally see. That tells us turnout will be high. So we actually don't know what to expect. It it could go either way uh, because in in so many ways, as everybody knows, this has been such an anomalous uh, election. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I think there's a few things to think about. It's just about turnout, but also uh, what what segments of the population are likely to turn out. And I, what I do expect is I think that we'll have a, a higher, we always have high women, uh, female turnout, but I think in this election cycle, we are going to see an uptick of women, but particularly in areas that the Clinton campaign has really targeted heavily. My, my guess is Pennsylvania will go Clinton, um, and it will go Clinton because of women um, in the Philadelphia suburbs, which her campaign has been all over to try to out, turn out those densely populated, college-educated white women in those suburbs. So she already has um, African-American women locked down. Um, and now it's all about those. They could be, they were Romney voters in 2012, but they can be easily flipped and turn uh, to turn out to Clinton voters. And this is because of Trump's uh, problem with uh, getting women onto <laughs> his side, for sure, to say it, to say the least, I guess. <laughs> and what can you say about their favorability ratings in Maryland? <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> well, it, you know, it's fascinating. I mean, Trump's unfavorable rating in, in the Goucher poll, I believe, was about 67 mm-hmm. percent, um, which is just incredibly high, incredibly high uh, for a candidate. Uh, but interestingly, you know, Hillary Clinton is ahead of Trump by about a two to one margin in that poll. And yet her unfavorable numbers are 46 percent. Mm-hmm. So it's almost a 50 50 split. So imagine a situation where she's winning handedly, but still half the voters don't really like her. And that is so much the story of this election. Two unpopular candidates. Each one was just trying to be the less least liked. (laughs) And there's been nothing really like that that you can think of before. 
No, and I think even across partisan, I, I think if you would ask a typical Democrat even about Mitt Romney in 2012, they could point to a lot of things they liked about him. Um, and I, I think t- one of the most poignant things I've heard about this election analysis is look how far we've come from um, binders full of women uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. into the comments that Trump have about, has about women. And it's just fundamentally two different things. Um, and this is the issue with having both candidates. I think for Republicans, Hillary Clinton is a very objectionable alter- alternative. Um, and that's why you don't see a lot of even Republican women breaking that breaking fully for Donald Trump is because her unfavorables are really high. Now they're okay among Demo- among Democrats. Democrats like her. Um, they don't love her. They think that we're the the far left leaning part of the party loved Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. But I think they respect her as a candidate, um, and they certainly like her by and by and large a lot more than Donald Trump. Do you think that? Um turnout could be a problem on the Democratic side this election year? Well, I think the Obama coalition, uh, I I think Hillary Clinton is already having difficulty inspiring that coalition. Uh, Racial and ethnic minorities, I do not expect to turn out at the same rate that they did uh, for Barack Obama in in either 2008 or 2012. And, you know, the other thing that, that has been fascinating to me, of course, Everybody expected that because of the things that Trump has said and continues to say, that Hispanic voters, African-American voters would be especially opposed to him and that um, the Republican level of support would be even lower than it normally is. And yet, if you look at the surveys, he's doing as well with racial and ethnic minorities as Mitt Romney did. Mm -hmm. So there's no real sense that they're going to be more inspired to vote than they were in the past. Uh, rather, it's it's white college-educated voters that are really throwing this election uh, to Hillary Clinton. And, and I think that's just something that we weren't expecting uh, even a few months ago. And then this is to Todd's point earlier as well, right? So typically, um, negativity does not inspire people to go to the polls. It mm-hmm. keeps people home more than it inspires people to go, and that's exactly – what we're seeing in this election cycle. So it does become this really interesting dynamic with working working class voters who are breaking very, very hard for Trump um, versus on the other side is a lot of college-educated, even Republicans, breaking hard for Hillary. But when we think about a coalition building, we think about the Obama coalition, we think about the changing dynamics of the electorate. You need to make inroads with communities of color to win, period. And this election cycle, I think, will prove difficult for Republicans going forward because they will have to start rebuilding everything they started in 2012. And there was a real concerted effort among Republicans to reach out uh, communities, communities of color to see how they could bring them into the Republican tent. And a lot of that effort, I think, has been wasted this election cycle. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about Obama, um, you know, you're talking about the Obama coalition. Mm-hmm. Maryland gives Obama's about a 66% approval rating. Mm-hmm. Is this higher than the national average? And, you know, could Hillary Clinton ever reach that <laughs> level? Even in Maryland? Yeah. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, Hillary Clinton at this point has at least three decades sort of baggage that Barack Obama never had. Um, he, he came into this as a really a fresh face that inspired a lot of people. And Clinton would have to fundamentally reinvent uh, her image. Um, you know, that said, she will do quite well in Maryland. Uh, Maryland delivered Barack Obama one of his largest margins of victory in, in 08 and in, in 2012. Um, but I, I suspect that she will struggle, um, it, should she win. I think she'll struggle to ever have an approval rating much above 50%, um, if, if it's even at that level, just because she is a very polarizing figure. 
But I'll give one pushback to Todd on this one. This is the <laughs> this is the data point that is the pushback is when she was Secretary of State, there was a, a there was a period of time where her approval rating nationwide was actually quite high. So high, in fact, people had this idea that there's buyer's remorse that perhaps Democrats should have bet on Clinton versus versus Obama. Now. Mm. This is the difference, though, between being Secretary of State, which is a position that does not have the increased scrutiny that being President of the United States, States does. So, yes, we have some data to su suggest that in office Hillary Clinton is more popular. But, again, just like Todd said, she's a really polarizing figure that's not, not positive that, that would translate into once you're in the Oval Office. Speaking of polarization in this election year, it, if either candidate gets elected – is there the possibility to mend America, or is Facebook and Twitter going to stay the exact same now <laughs> for the next four years? Well, so I'll say um, I, I have a hard time seeing uh, President Trump um, sort of bring the, the country together. Uh, it, it just it, it doesn't seem to be in his wheelhouse to, to reach out to people that disagree with him and to bring people together. I think with Clinton, on the other hand, there's at least the possibility. Um, she's much more of a pragmatist than um, Trump is. And if she goes to Washington with a Republican Congress, if she wants to accomplish anything, she's going to have to work with them. And she does have the model of her husband. I mean, we, we tend to look to the 90s and think of the showdowns between Congress and Clinton, Newt Gingrich and Clinton. But the 90s were actually a very productive policy period. And Clinton and the Republican Congress found a way to work together. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's much more likely. I, I, in many ways, I think she would be more effective working with a Republican Congress than even Trump would. Right, and there's some evidence in the past as well. It was when she was a senator, and she actually has this really great um, uh, campaign ad where she uses the words of Republicans who had worked with her in the Senate um, to talk about how great it was actually to work with Hillary Clinton. I'm sure it makes them cringe when they watch this ad. I can't imagine. Um, but there is some evidence that suggests that she can't work across the aisle. But the question really becomes, um, would anybody, would they be willing to work with her across the aisle? Because... We can already hear the rhetoric that if she becomes president, there will be no Supreme Court nominations that could push forward, um, that they'll definitely be – they'll be start the, start the new campaign immediately. The day after she's inaugurated, the new campaign will begin for Republicans. Mm -hmm. So I know this is something you were interested in, Todd, when I emailed you is about – uh, and this was uh, something in a Goucher poll that people tend to have friends of the same party, <laughs> right, um, and not so much – elsewhere. <laughs> what is that phenomenon? Is that changing? Um, I know you mentioned maybe it was a little bit more common in the younger generation. Right. And I mean, first and foremost, it's it's unfortunate that people don't have friendships that sort of bridge the, the partisan divide um, because it mimics what happens in Congress where you have the Republicans over here, the Democrats over here, and they never speak. Um, but as far as friendships go, you know, Democrats are more likely to live in areas that are overwhelmingly Democratic. Uh, urban areas, for instance, you, you may well be 80, 85 percent Democratic. It's, it's hard to find someone uh, across the aisle. Uh, for Republicans, it's more common. And the Goucher poll that was out recently sort of showed that. But there was a study out, and unfortunately I've forgotten the authors, but they were looking at people who marry across partisan lines. <laughs> and what they found was um, – that roughly 71% of people who marry, marry within their party. 
but there is a real age gap there. The older you are, the more likely you are to be married to someone in your party. The younger you get, the less likely that is. And that, coupled with several other data points, really gives me hope that this intense polarization that we've been dealing with for decades will start to peter out as the baby boom generation sort of passes the baton uh, to a younger generation that, that is just tired uh, of, of the partisanship and the polarization. I always think what a wonderful world it would be if we could live in a situation where we could both sit down at dinner and really and just talk about the merits of free trade versus the mer- merits of more protectionism. For, uh, when we talk about reproductive rights in a way that um, it doesn't devolve immediately into screaming and yelling. Um, mm-hmm. And perhaps those things would actually be reflected in our politics. To what Todd was mentioning, um, what we've seen, though, over the past decade or so um, are less of these swing districts and more of heavily red or heavily blue because people start to move and live into communities that better fit their ideology. The book is called The Big Sort. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, written by a sociologist. It shows how you know liberals will tend to live in these urban, these kind of urban environments or uh, in small, these uh, type of we call it like yuppie type environments where there's a coffee shop and a yoga studio. Um, and it's interesting how these dynamics start to uh, they, they start to change and they start to affect how we vote and who actually gets into public office. So we have two, we have um, extremes on either side getting into public office, and those individuals are not as willing to compromise um, from a diverse constituency perspective. Mm-hmm. Have you ever met any bipartisan couples? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I won't divulge anything. (laughs) No names needed. My wife and I are not on the same page politically, uh, and we have no problem with that uh, at all. Um, In in fact, I enjoy the fact that we're not on the same page uh, politically. It it, it makes for more interesting conversations. Um, But as far – it's actually not something I talk to people about. I I think maybe it's because I study it. Mm -hmm. Whenever I meet someone, sort of the last thing I think to say is, well, you know, what's your political affiliation? And, (laughs) uh, you know, does your spouse share that with you? (laughs) I'm trying to think of all the couples we know. I mean, now, but again, keep in mind, I live in Baltimore City. And so like, what we were just talking about, uh, how we know the Democratic-Republican ratio in Baltimore City, and the chances of us meeting Republicans is really um, not rare. rare. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess in, in my own marriage, uh, so my husband is, he's really interested in local politics, which makes him not really that partisan, I think, especially at the mm-hmm. very, very localized level. We're interested in stuff in our direct community, um, and he has some opinions on larger things, but those type of contentions really don't happen that much in my home because probably the same reason um, for talk, we get sick of talking about it all day maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I think too because of what we study, we understand yeah. <laughs> the dark side of uh, of people refusing to to see another point of view. Absolutely, and and it just it frustrates us, and and we don't want to see that happen in our own lives. So I think we're more more apt to, to try to avoid it. I write a political column for the paper, and when the Goucher poll came out, I put a little item in there. If you're someone who has bipartisan friends or friends from other political oh. parties, <laughs> please contact me. And I got one email from someone who's registered to a third party. Mm-hmm. So he's probably the most likely person to have <laughs> friends from <laughs> another party. When you're talking about these, you know, the separation of Democrats going to one area, Republicans going into another, we're seeing some slowly shifting demographics, political demographics in Frederick County, where oh, okay. it's been a traditional red stronghold, but, you know, we have a split county council. 
Um, our county executive is Democratic, but there's still a hardcore Republican base. So have you seen any other parts of the state kind of mixing it up a little bit in that regard? Or? Well, I mean, certainly we have seen parts of the state that um, traditionally were home to the, the remaining conservative Democrats in Maryland, uh, back when Maryland still had that big tent Democratic Party, down where I am in St. Mary's County and in Calvert County, uh, until as recently as 2010, 2011, Democrats outnumbered Republicans. That has shifted now. Republicans are the majority party. And even though many of those Democrats tended to vote Republican, if you look at the 2014 gubernatorial election, Larry Hogan won in many of those counties 75% of the vote, far beyond what Republicans had done before. So, yes, you are seeing in Maryland areas clearly becoming uh, more Republican and areas that are clearly becoming more Democratic. Frederick, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Folks coming out of D.C., government employees, indirect government employees, you, you can understand why they would be more, um, more open to the Democratic Party message. Can I tell you, I cannot wait to answer this question um, during, the next, <laughs> during the next election cycle because okay. that's, that's where the really rubber hits the road here, that we do see these changing demographics. We have a really popular Republican governor that was able to build this coalition. I mean, so popular, in fact, that he was able to – the first district count, city council district in Baltimore, in Baltimore City, went for Larry Hogan. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be interesting to see what this looks like in that next coming cycle, then I think we'll really be able to get a good picture what um, if there was actually a purpling, quote-unquote, of Maryland, mm -hmm. um, or if Larry Hogan is himself just a political anomaly. Mm -hmm. What do you, let's talk about him for a second, since we're on the topic. Sure. Um, you know, what do you think about his favorability ratings? What do you think underlie that? Um, obviously, he's tried to stay away from the question of Donald Trump. Yes, with, uh, at all costs. And, yeah. um, and listen, I think that, so... Democrats have tried to pin Trump to Larry Hogan in the last month or so. Uh, it's a good political strategy, but it's not going to work. Uh, he was an early unadopter of mm -hmm. Donald Trump. He uh, he had never endorsed him, um, always uh, had initially endorsed Chris Christie. Um, but then back in June, when Trump won, he, won, he was the, one of the first governors. I think him and Charlie Baker from uh, Massachusetts said, no, thank you. Uh, and he's stayed away from it this entire summer. And for him, it's paid off politically. The Galtrapole actually asked about whether it made people, if you made, it made you like him more or didn't make a difference or like him less. And by and large, people either didn't care that he didn't endorse or they liked him more because of it. Very, very few people actually liked the governor less because he decided not to endorse Donald Trump. Uh, right. And I think this was something that, that backfired on, on state Democratic leaders. They have been trying to find something that would undermine his popularity. They thought they had stumbled upon something with, with Trump. Uh, you had um, Congressman Delaney hiring a truck to drive around Annapolis, you know, asking Hogan uh, if he would take a stand. So they goaded him into taking a position, and he said, oh, I, I don't support him. I'm not going to vote for him. And it's, it's helped maintain his popularity. So they thought maybe they were going to do something that might weaken him, and instead— they, they got him to do something that, that has only made him um, more popular. So uh, I think they're still trying to figure out what, what they do to start, to start bringing his numbers down. So partisanship kind of shot them in the foot. Yes. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, it made him seem like somebody who is above partisan politics. That's mm -hmm. exactly what this has done. Um, so you're, Todd's exactly right. It, did, it, didn't, it didn't help the case, to drive a case against him. As a matter of fact, I think it really solidified, particularly among um, independents, that here is somebody who has an independent voice for the state. 
Mm-hmm. Is there such a thing as a nonpartisan race anymore? And I'll give you an example <laughs> because locally our school board race is obviously nonpartisan, but there are very clear political ties. We had a Democrat drop out specifically to say, I want to take votes away from the Republican in the race. So is this the case all over the state that there are truly nonpartisan races or, you know, is there less evidence if they're like appointed boards or something? Um, you know, unfortunately, there are very few nonpartisan races. Even if there are no parties attached to the candidate, uh, very quickly it's sort of known uh, what party this person may be. And, you know, unfortunately this is reflective of the fact that in many local elections, turnout is incredibly low, but the people who do vote are the ones who are more partisan. So the conservatives turn out to vote, the liberals turn out to vote, and that's the crowd you've got to appeal to uh, in order to win. If you had more turnout, then this would probably be less of an issue because we know from, from uh, studies that the people who don't turn out to vote are disproportionately more moderate. They're not so partisan. And I'll tell you what I'm also fundamentally interested in. And I hate to you know put the cart before the horse because I know we're supposed to be talking about 2016. <laughs> no, but my good. goodness, can I not wait to see about Hogan's coattails um, in, the t- the, in the gubernatorial election cycle? Because that will be, I think, fundamentally interesting. We've seen right now in this election cycle, Shalega um, is Hogan endorsed, as well as Mark Plaster um, and um, Ami Hober. Ami Hober, yeah. Um, and it's unclear right now if those coattails would have helped any of those candidates out. It will be really interesting at the state legislative level to see if those coattails will help those delegates and senators out, the other Republican ticket. Well, and, and Republican politicians really seem to like the way that Larry Hogan is operating. A lot of the people who work on Delegate Shalego's campaign for U.S. Senate are the same people who worked on Larry Hogan's campaign for the governorship. So it'll be interesting to see if those people keep operating in Maryland and whether or not that will change the way that our elections work in any way. Although I think it's really important to, to remember that elections in Maryland are very different in presidential years than they are in midterm years. The mix of the electorate is different in the state. And John Delaney's congressional district is actually the perfect example of this. In a presidential election year, that district is about 55-45 Democrat. In a midterm year, which is when our uh, gubernatorial elections take place, it's Mm 50-50. That's a pretty dramatic shift just over a two-year cycle, but it's because of the folks who turn out for presidential elections who don't turn out in midterm elections. So, uh, you know, the folks who are running this year, they're endorsed by Hogan. I don't expect it to make much of a difference because it's a presidential year. Whenever it's the House of Delegates and the Maryland uh, Senate that, uh, you know, are on the ballot, then I'm really curious to see what kind of coattails he has. Can he get Republicans to that level in the Senate, for instance, that they could filibuster? Uh, That Mm -hmm. in and of itself would dramatically change uh, Maryland politics. Mm -hmm. How well do you think he'll do when he runs for re-election then? And uh, some of his, who are some of his possible challengers? And, you know, he's very popular, then how would they fare? So... At the moment, I think you can see a few folks who are already lining up. Kamenetz, obviously, um, from, from Baltimore County, is, is picking fights with him and already seeking out sources of funding. Um, I, I don't mean to be dismissive, but I don't see him as sort of a top-tier um, challenger to Hogan. 
I think the real question is, does Hogan's approval rating remain where it is? If it does, that in and of itself may scare away some top-tier challengers who would rather wait another four years Mm -hmm. when there's an open seat to run for. So that's what I'm waiting to see. Um, You know, Rusher and Baker, there was certainly a lot of thought that he might run. I'm not sure, you know, given the the health issues with his wife, if if he would even be able to or, or would want to to make that uh, that decision right now, um, he he obviously would have been a very serious challenge um, to Hogan. Well, and the Washington Post did ask about name recognition of um, Kevin Kamenetz, mm-hmm. Russian Baker, John Delaney, and uh, Peter Francho. And Peter Francho was the only one who really had any sort of name mm-hmm. recognition statewide. And he won't be running against Hogan. No. <laughs> no. So <laughs> We've uh, seen that. <laughs> right. Uh, listen, at the end of the day, uh, so this is the difference. So Todd alluded to this difference between like, those individuals who turn out to vote in these state-level elections. Well, these are the people who are cl- paying very, very close attention. And so uh, right now, so asking asking about um, individuals who are locally perhaps known. So I'm sure people know who Ke- Kevin Kamenetz is in Baltimore County. I am not sure that they know who he is um, in Washington Garrett counties, mm-hmm. right? And so these, this is the issue. So you have to build up name recognition against the governor who's really popular. And so although they're Democrats, they carry that Democratic label with them, which will certainly help them with a – they have a built-in buffer. Still, that Hogan coalition is really strong, and if he keeps up those approval ratings, if people continue to look at him as somebody who governs in a bipartisan manner – he will be a difficult person to beat, and strategic politicians perhaps might defer to that next election cycle with an open seat. Mm-hmm. What I, are, go ahead. Well, I, what, I was just going to ask, um, we've talked about the Washington Post poll, mm-hmm. University of Maryland, the Goucher poll, but there's not a lot of polling in Maryland. So it's sometimes sad you can't um, see, you know, who. how are things going in the 6th? district no. what's the top issue for sixth district voters what's the top issue for eighth district voters uh, do you ever see a time where the national pollsters will care about us um <laughs> <laughs> well uh um, appreciate your poll absolutely. no i was gonna say well yeah i think we do a pretty good job uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. no uh, listen at the end of the day we're we are not um there's not a lot of national fodder here so we got a little bit of attention um during this uh when uh holly Chris Van Hollen and Donna Edwards running against each other because of the historic nature of having um, an African-American female senatorial candidate. This is not we have very few um, women of color in the in the House and Senate. So this would be a this is a big deal. Um, we had a little bit of a touch of national spotlight. But other than that, we are a blue state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so unless we do something to shake it up unless a massive amount of Republicans move into Maryland and make it truly a swing state and then increase the population enough to get us enough electoral votes that matter. Yeah. You're not going to see a lot of attention here in Maryland mm-hmm. or Rhode Island or anywhere. right. <laughs> right. I mean, We're not alone. <laughs> I, I suspect there will be some more polling of the gubernatorial race in yes. uh, uh, 2018 just because everybody missed um, the, the coming Hogan victory. Mm-hmm. Uh, very few uh, polls were done. They all seemed to indicate that Anthony Brown was going to win and win comfortably. There was this one sort of partisan poll conducted that showed Hogan up by four points that everybody just sort of dismissed, and it turns out being the one that, that called the race. Uh, so, so that race, I think, is going to be polled more. But, you know, you mentioned the 6th Congressional District. In 2014, nobody, I think, expected Dan Bongino to come within, right. you know, several hundred votes of actually toppling uh, John Delaney. Had there been some polling done, he probably could have gotten some party money, and he may have actually wound up winning that race. 
but there's just not this interest in investing in Maryland. They, they don't see that there's really a great rate of return there, so the national pollsters don't look at it, and the party pollsters really don't spend much time here. Polling is expensive, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's another reason. I mean, th- th- these things are not done on the cheap um, when they're done well, and you're not going to see par- uh, party organizations pay $25,000 for a solid likely voter poll enough to break down by different demographics. It's just really expensive. Mm-hmm. Well, candidates and step in sometimes with their polls and they pay for them with campaign cash. Sure. So are they reliable and where should we be looking then? Well, well, I think that they're, they're certainly probably reliable, but if, uh, if the reports are anything but negative, they get buried in a box deep, deep away, so people like you never, ever see them <laughs> if they're not uh, in the candidate's favor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's standard practice. If, if you're polling for your own campaign, you only release the polls that look good for you. Everything else gets buried. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a fair representation of what's going on. It's, it's them sort of directing the news. When, when a campaign does release their own poll, and we talked a lot a little while ago about how to form poll questions, um, are, are they working from the outset to make it look good for them so that they're trying to get a positive outcome in the way that they're asking the questions and how, who they're calling? Here's the fundamental difference between um, campaign polls done by candidates for campaigns and public polls like ours. So there are, uh, with, with mixed within those polls are a lot of message testing. So they'll have it like a question that says, what if I told you that X, Y, and Z? Would this make you da-da-da-da-da, right? Now, when we release polls, we release all the questions as worded in the order in which they were actually administered. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to have that. You're not going to have that full type of disclosure with campaign polls, which they shouldn't. They're not public polls. They're for campaigns only. And again, just to reiterate the point, they only want to show you the good face. Mm-hmm. So they're only going to show you the numbers that indicates that they're candidate, that tells the story in which they want to tell the voters. And so that's and, and not that their polls, their pollsters don't use solid methodology because they absolutely do. I think they have a good grasp on what's going on in their district. They just don't want to show you all the stuff that isn't a good story for them. <laughs> okay. And can you tell us just a little bit about um, the Goucher poll? Um, sure. So um, the Goucher poll is a dual frame uh, uh, live caller survey. Um, we take a stratified random sample of Maryland residents, um, which means we get a little bit of everybody um, in proportion of the population of the state. Uh, we do all the calling on Goucher's campus. Uh, so we have a, um, a I, I trained about 200 students to actually administer the survey. We call anywhere between three and five days. Um, it's all part of our public mission. So Sarah Tillman Hughes, which is the Hughes Center's namesake, was the judge who swore an LBJ after Kennedy was shot, um, and she was a Goucher alum. And when she passed away, she left an endowment to the college for us to do basically things to train students in for a love of government and political affairs. And this is what we chose to do with the money. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun. So for, for us, it helps us train students um, about public opinion and, for me, data-driven political science, which is the way to go. Mm-hmm. So have you uncovered any national issues that might be coming up in the state General Assembly this next session? Or Well, we can Todd and I definitely can talk about what issues we think are coming up. Oh, yeah. Up. Oh, yeah. So. Please, please. <laughs> Did you want to start? <laughs> uh, I would – listen, I, I would like to – what I think will I think will happen. I think that marijuana will come up again. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it goes anywhere, that's remains to be seen. I think we—I uh, I saw a recent poll out from the Washington Post that actually has it up the highest I've seen it in the state and for, for support for legalization. Um, paid sick leave, my guess, will come back up, and uh, and certainly uh, there will be some, I think, kerfuffle about the post Labor Day start. Mm-hmm. 
it. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, I mean, I think also you're probably going to see um, right to die legislation oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, come back around again. Um, and, and I think there will be some issues that are brought up, like starting uh, school after Labor Day, some issues brought up solely for the purpose of creating uh, a showdown with, with Governor Hogan. Uh, because again, it, it's part of an ongoing strategy to try to, to bring his numbers down. Um, so it'll be confrontational, but I, I think those are probably the main issues. You know, uh, Senate uh, President Mike Miller didn't seem to be too into the idea of challenging the post-Labor Day start, uh, and, and he specifically cited the fact that an overwhelming majority of the people support it. So where is the, the impetus to, to take that on? if you don't have the public uh, behind you. So I know there are some folks who would really love mm -hmm. to raise that issue, um, but I don't know if uh, Miller or Bush will allow something that would cut across public opinion um, to come forward and take up the time. That's what I was going to ask, too. Governor Hogan cut quite a bit of flack for the post-Labor Day start, but it was mostly from you know the Democratic lawmakers, people in education circles. Did this at all hurt him, this move? Or? None of the polling, so we, both us and the Wash Post poll, were taken after his executive order. Um, and we can debate the merits of executive orders and when you should issue them all day long. So I think Todd definitely has opinions <laughs> on that one. <laughs> but, uh, but at the end of the day, this is a popular issue. And, and, it's a, and it's a hard sell to get people against it, right? Mm -hmm. So people, the, the, aver the average Marylander isn't really that concerned with your problems with your school calendar. So that sounds like an issue that you have to deal with in your workplace. So I don't think that they are as sympathetic to those um, those type of arguments. And and the reason I can say that is because the Wash Post poll actually pressed people, those who supported the post-Labor Day start, they presented them with the issues of the school calendar and asked if it would sway their opinion. And they said no. The by and large, people said no. Mm -hmm. And so this is just an issue um, whether the reason they're doing it, um, at least uh, Peter Francho and Governor Hogan will say, because of economic development issues. Now, the general public doesn't see it that way. When we've asked about it in the past, the general public looks at, like, nostalgia. Well, we always started school after Labor Day. That's what our kids can do, too. We never had a problem. Look how good we turned out. Um, but, again, whatever's driving public opinion doesn't really matter. Public opinion is on their side. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of the folks, too, just they, they don't understand what actually bothers many parents about yes. the school calendar. And what bothers parents about the school calendar are all of these random days throughout the year where there is no school. Mm -hmm. And that forces them to try to find either childcare or to take time off of work. Over the summer when it's, it's sort of planned and it's part of that, that um, you know, multi-month break, there are camps, there are other programs that are available for, for the kids. The idea of, you know, let's ta tack an extra week onto summer and have fewer of these days scattered throughout the year is actually very appealing to a lot of parents. And I, I think that, that folks just sort of didn't get that. And they, they certainly found out with the polls that came out. Sure. And, and listen, at the end of the day, a lot of it is a false choice. So it's not that Governor Hogan is the one who's creating summer vacation. So that a lot of, another argument is that brain drain issue. And I think absolutely education community has absolutely established that there is education loss over the summer. However, we're, ta we're really talking about a week. So mm -hmm. you need to establish, and then you'd have to establish whether that week causes a great, how much more significant of a lo of educational loss you get in that week. Not the whole summer, but just the week, because that's what's in question. So there's that issue as well. Mm -hmm. So you don't think legislation might be taken up? I mean, even like mm -hmm. some of his biggest challengers, I know Senator Paul Pinsky from Prince George's sure. County has been 
very vocal about this, but it's been still kind of iffy on whether he'd sponsor legislation, maybe a court challenge or... I think the court challenge is the most likely outcome. Uh, you know, if you're the Democrats of the Assembly, why do you want to take up an issue that 70% of Marylanders support? It makes much more sense to let the courts deal with it. And then if the courts ultimately strike it down, that's a win for you because you can say, well, look, the, the governor exceeded his authority here. There's nothing political. Mm-hmm. He exceeded his authority. So it makes much more sense for Democrats to strategically to not raise this uh, in the session. And it also makes uh, uh, sense for Democrats to to address. So one of the issues addressed here um, with the post-labor start is it costs low-income families a lot of money that don't have the opportunity to put their kids into camp. Mm -hmm. So instead of perhaps rolling back that the post-labor start or putting legislation, um, perhaps putting in um, an amendment or some funding opportunities to fund low uh, after school or summer programs for low-income students, if that could be a possible way to address to meet the best of both worlds, because if this is the new mandate in which schools are going to operate under, if that's the if that's the political reality, if the public's behind it, perhaps allocate some funding toward to alleviating some of the issues surrounding low income families, mm-hmm. or increase funding for the uh, the low income meal programs that exist. Sure, because yeah. low income kids uh, can get meals during the summer as well. It's just that a lot of people don't know about it. There aren't as many centers available as there are during the school year. So there's a case to be made there for expanding that opportunity so that kids for that extra week continue to have access to, to low cost or free uh, nutritious meals. Mm-hmm. You were talking about court challenges. Another issue that's in the courts right now is the Maryland um, gerrymandering case. Um, which is super important to people here because if you've um, you know read the filings, they concentrate a lot on the sixth and the eighth, which is what Frederick County is now divided between. Um, do you think that redistricting legislation will come up again this year? Uh, no. So so I think many of the battles that are taking place right now between the Democrats and Hogan are proxy wars for 2018 and the fact that if Hogan wins, he is gonna be in the driver's seat for redistricting the state of Maryland after the next census. And if he's in the driver's seat, then these wonderfully well-crafted maps that Democrats have made to protect their supermajority go away. Um, So I think he has to win re-election for the General Assembly to be willing to consider reforms to the way in which we draw our district lines. That or the courts will have to step in and say, you know what, this is a, a violation of your your freedom of speech, your freedom of expression. It's it's denying you the ability to to have uh, representation. Mm-hmm. I honestly, like after looking at the the, the sixth district, I cannot imagine how frustrated Republican voters are who live in Washington, Garrett, uh, and Allegheny counties. Mm-hmm. Having, I mean, obviously that the sliver that cut, touches Montgomery County is what really sways the election. And you can, I can absolutely um, understand their frustration that they're not represented by a Republican, given how red this part of the, the um, state is. Especially if you look at something like their General Assembly delegations. It <laughs> doesn't match at all with um, our congressional delegation, for example. Well, and of course, Maryland, Maryland is, is viewed as one of the most gerrymandered states in the country. And why would anyone want that to be what your state is known for? that we're really good at fixing uh, elections here in the state. It's just, it's, it's not good. Uh, it's not good for democracy, obviously, but it's, it's not good for the reputation of the state either. 
going back to some of those other things that might come up in the General Assembly, marijuana, right to life, what are the blocks there? Um, you know, is it an individual and a committee that's been blocking some of these? Is the momentum not there on some of them? Or um, Yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> often, often the case in Maryland is that uh, controversial issues come up, but they have to they have to gestate or they have to ripen. And usually that means they go through a few legislative sessions before they eventually make it um, uh, to the governor's desk for a, for a signature. And, and I think that's what's happening here. You're steadily bringing enough people on board. That's what it took uh, with same-sex marriage, for instance. We've taken some baby steps with regard to marijuana. Um, the, the, the right to die issue, I think, especially in a, in a Catholic state, is, mm-hmm. is just a difficult issue for a lot of folks to, to accept. But they'll continue to bring it up, and, and I think eventually they'll, they'll, they'll bring enough people around that it will probably pass. I just don't know if, if it's going to happen this session necessarily. And so these types of legislation typically will incrementally change enough uh, that will it'll muster enough to get past uh, different committees. And so I think about last session when O.J. Brigance, uh, the former Ravens player, testified against um, the Right to Life bill. Um, and these are these types of high profile, like really poignant testimony can really sway, um, especially in a committee, can sway enough committee members to not even let it get to the House floor. And again, and that does represent a really important, I think, point of view. Anytime you have these social issues with this moral underpinning, they are tough to get through to legislate. Period. Legislating morality is really difficult. Mm-hmm. And so, do you think that having Hogan as the Republican governor might? I mean, even if they got through the General Assembly, you have to face a Republican governor then. And I do not know. I, I don't believe Hogan has taken a formal position oh, on, on those on, on okay. either one of those issues. No, not mar- mar- marijuana or um, right to life, or right to die. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think uh, you know if if the legislation was moving forward, they would want to at least through back channels get a sense for what Hogan would do because I can't imagine that either of those issues would pass with a margin large enough mm-hmm. uh, to override a veto. And if that's the case. Why pass it only to have it, you know, vetoed and, and you've used precious time of the, the session mm-hmm. on, on an issue that ultimately uh, died at the governor's desk? Mm-hmm. Cool. Oh, I just I just wanted to circle back to 2016 mm-hmm. really yeah, quick. Definitely. <laughs> so oh, that's right. That's not over yet. Yeah, that did, is happening. Uh, we are. We do still have this that. This was such a nice reprieve. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, what do you guys what do you guys expect for election night? What results do you think we're going to see come in? You know, I, I actually um, I, I go back and forth on this almost on a daily basis. Um, I, I see right now that there are indications that the race is starting to tighten again. Um, the fact that um, Real Clear Politics, for instance, just moved Pennsylvania into toss-up category. Mm-hmm. CNN just took Nevada and uh, Florida from lean Democrat back to toss-up. Um, my expectation is still that, that Hillary Clinton wins. But I have a hard time seeing an electoral college um, margin that rivals Obama. I, I see her perhaps in the 290s. Uh, I think the reason she's got a healthy lead in the popular vote is because the race is close in states like Texas. So she's got a lot of, quote unquote, wasted votes out there mm-hmm. that don't mm-hmm. ultimately help her with her electoral college margin. Um, so, so I see this as, as ultimately being a closer race than I think some people think it's going to be right now. 
And for Republicans, that's crucial because they want to hold on to the Senate. And it has to stay a close race for them to keep that Senate majority. Do you think we face a too close to call on election night or no? Listen, and I hope not, to be honest with you. <laughs> and, and that's not an indication of who I want to win. Um, it's an indication of how dangerous I actually think Trump's rhetoric is about this idea of the rigged election. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 as an American, as somebody who cares deeply about this country, I actually think that kind of that that we should not be telling voters, particularly as first time voters. That's what breaks my heart when I hear. This, this, this idea that your vote doesn't count it is not the message we should be sending to a new generation of voters, period. Mm-hmm. And so I was really taken aback by Trump's comments. Um, it, was, it was good to hear Pence disavow them, basically, but um, we really need to hear that sentiment expressed from the top of the ticket, um, even if it's expressed with him saying, I hope to win, but you know, if I don't win, then I'll certainly accept you know, that this peaceful transition of power. Mm-hmm. So that's, I guess, that was my general takeaway. I'm not sure how Todd feels about it, but <laughs> uh, no, it's actually it's infuriating um, to listen to a major party candidate talk about rigged elections. Um, we, uh, you know, the academic community have been studying this issue for decades, and the consensus is clear: election fraud is incredibly rare in the United States, and it would be virtually impossible to rig a presidential election. Because think about it, we vote by precinct, these small little precincts. And if you wanted to try to rig an election, you would have to figure out how to rig enough votes in enough precincts that nobody could pick up on what you did. And you'd have to be prescient enough to know, well, which states do I have to rig so that we can get the electoral college majority? And right now, Republicans control uh, 31 governorships, which means you would have to be rigging elections in Republican-controlled states. So it's an idea that just on its face can't be supported, um, yet you'll have folks posting these videos of, oh, I pushed the button on the touch screen and it, it voted for the Democrat. The machine's not calibrated, you know? You fix it and, and everything's fine. There's just no evidence to support the idea. Mm-hmm. that there is any problem with the American electoral system. Mm-hmm. And listen, if people want to talk about the problems with the American electoral system, let's talk about gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, so instead of talking about things that aren't happening, like votes not counting or the system, quote unquote, being rigged, let's have a fundamental conversation in the country about money and politics or about how we draw our district lines. These are things that actually affect the integrity of American elections, not people sw- vote, machines switching votes. Mm-hmm. And as far as uh, Maryland goes congressionally, do you, do you anticipate any change there, or do you think we'll see Chris Van Hollen step into Barbara Mikulski's shoes, all the other seats stay the same? He's up significantly in the polls. Um, I, I watched the senatorial debate uh, live, and mm-hmm. I will say this for Kathy Shalega, so if she does not come out victorious um, for the Senate seat, I, she certainly has a future in Republican politics in this state. She was very, very good on the debate stage. She's incredibly likable uh, and personal as a candidate. Um, so that's something that Larry Hogan, that ca- a characteristic that Larry Hogan has. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, if she does not, if she's unable to close that sizable gap that Chris Van Hollen has on has on her. What 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 her next move is? She'll still be the dele- the minority whip in the House. Um, it'll be interesting where she goes from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without question. I mean, again, th- this is a statewide race in a presidential election year. A Republican isn't going to win that race. And, and that's just reality. It's not a criticism of the candidate. It- it's just the nature of Maryland politics. 
-hmm. So it's likely we'll have an all-male congressional district for, or, I'm sorry, representation for Maryland. And that is strange. And, and that, again, and I, taking a step back and in this, uh, w walking away from the era of Mikulski, which for people who study women in politics, she, I mean, she's an icon for women in politics. Whether mm -hmm. you're Republican and you don't like her, she's mm -hmm. still an icon for women in politics. And it, is, it does feel sort of strange in a lot of ways that Maryland won't have um, a woman, a female it's a congressional delegation. That being said, we are still top 10 in terms of state legislative represent, representation for women. So all is not lost for women in politics in Maryland. Well, great. Okay. Thank you guys for coming. We Very appreciate it. Very much. It's a session. great conversation. Thank you so much. I'm yeah. oh, happy to do it. Super fun. Thanks for having us. Mm -hmm. In the Booth is produced by Graham Collin, Chris Sands, Jeremy Bauerwolf, and me. Our theme music is courtesy of FMP reporter and rocker Kelsey Luce. If it's politics and it's Frederick, we hope you'll join us for the conversation in the booth. <laughs>